the Koigig pod. But we're too quick to drop off 3v1. That's been a problem that we actually stopped against Scotland because Niamh Fahey stepped in to stop Caroline Weir. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Could you please give a warm round of applause to, uh, well, a Celtic legend amongst other things, I'm sure a few Celtic fans in the house, a brilliant footballer. We're really delighted he's here. John Hartson with us, everyone. have you with us just John have a microphone he does there you go very important we'll try that again you're very welcome thank you good evening everybody good evening so uh, we're going to talk World Cup later on I know you're you're going out there life now in general you're living in Edinburgh yeah life's good for me um just healthy. I think uh, 12 years ago I was diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer that spread to my lungs and onto my brain. Um, it was a very difficult time, obviously. I think, I think when you get told you've got cancer, your initial thoughts are is that you're going to die. You know, and that's, that's what I thought. So very blessed to come through that. Uh, so I, I very much appreciate, I appreciate the simple things in life now, Joe. Um, so, yeah, um, time with my children and sucking in the fresh air every day. So I'm, I'm healthy, which is the main thing. So I'm in a good place. I'm, I'm clean. I'm, I'm, 11 years, I'm 11 years abstinence from gambling. I've not had a bet in 11 years. Uh, so things are good, mate. Things are very good. I'm in a good place. Well, I wasn't going to jump in on such heavy topics, but, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's clear that they've had a big impact on you and... They're worth talking about. The striking thing about your cancer diagnosis in 2009, you weren't long retired, yeah. is that you had nose, noticed a lump on your testicle and hadn't gone to the doctor for four years, which just seems, I mean, <laughs> I presume even some part of you was thinking, oh, four years, I should really get this checked out, or, or was it total ignorance? Well, first of all, I felt, I felt a little lump. I felt a little lump on one of my testicles. And um, I didn't think anything of it. And I think as the years, the years went by, the lump all of a sudden on one of my testicles started to get a bit bigger. Um, and then I was at West Brom. I was playing Brian Robson, signed me and Kevin Phillips on the same day at West Brom. And um, one particular day I showed this particular lump to my wife. And it was like it, it turned into like a a baked bean size, then into like a, a Malteser size, then it became like the size of a grape on the edge of one of my testicles. And subconsciously, I, al I almost felt like something was wrong because I didn't feel right. I always think in the morning when, when you're not right, when you don't feel right when you get out of bed, there's something wrong. I think you, everybody knows their own body and everybody knows the way they feel. But for me, I wasn't feeling great at that time. Uh, so I felt something was, was wrong. Um, and my wife said to me, go and check it, go and check that with the West Brom doctor. And I told the white lie. I told her that I'd been and everything's fine. Um, and I'd just carry on, but I hadn't been to see him. So that was a big, huge mistake because if I'd got it at that particular time, 
Um, it would have been dealt with that I'd probably gone into hospital, had one of my testicles taken off, I might have had a few sessions of chemotherapy yeah. um, and not gone through all the rigmarole of two emergency brain operations and God knows how much chemotherapy and just, just that time in hospital, which I spent six weeks in hospital, which is not nice because I'm used to, used to being out on the, in the fresh air, you know, uh, playing football, you know, every day. Uh, so it's totally out of my comfort zone when I was in the hospital. And, you know, these, these surgeons and these, um, these nurses, they're, they're incredible people, you know. It was, I was being washed every day uh, with a bedpan by these nurses and at the time people think it's a little bit embarrassing but it's not they do it every day these nurses they're incredible people um, and, and I feel very lucky to, to have come through that period but I'm wiser I'm a little bit older and um, I, I think I believe I'm better for the experience you know that included two brain surgeries mm. close to 70 chemotherapy sessions and as you said it spread to your lungs and to your brain yeah now i'm no scientist but lungs and brain feel essential to me how uh, uh, how much trouble were you in with the diagnosis was the outlook always john listen this is going to be okay we're going to get on top of this or was there a fair degree of worry well the initial words my um my specialist said to me was john you have a tumor on your testicle, it's cancerous, it spreads to your lungs and it's on your brain. Over the next three or four months, you're gonna go through some rigorous treatment. I wish you well. And it was almost like he was saying bye-bye to me. Wow. You know, so I went home, I told my wife, we had a cuddle, I started praying for my life. Um, I'm not an overly religious man, um, but I started praying. I had, I had three children, my wife was pregnant. So, you know, it was, it was a tough time uh, at that point. And, and generally, testicular cancer, it's got a 97% success rate. Yeah. You know, but if, if you allow it to spread and ignore signs, it spread to, it spread to my lungs um, and onto my brain. So I wasn't just dealing with my testicular cancer. Terrifying. It was, at the time, it was awful. And, yeah. you know, there was one particular time where my eyes were sort of pretty much rolling on the, on the bed and... You know, I came very close, and I think when you've almost touched the other side, you know, you come out a lot, a lot more appreciative of things. And, and as I said, it's the simple things now. It's time with my kids, it's walking along the beach, you know, um, just normal things in my life. That whereas 20 years ago, I was like a madman. I wanted everything, I wanted it then, I wanted it now. Right. I was drinking heavily, I was staying up all night. I'm a different character now because I appreciate what, what was almost taken away from me, you know, my, my life. You mentioned there as well that your gambling had gone out of control. Yeah. So often there is a, a low point or a rock bottom that instigates a change. Did you have a rock bottom or was it more of a gradual awakening? I think most people that have been in um, addiction clinics or therapy or counselling, I think most of them people have hit rock bottom. Because sometimes they say you've got to hit rock bottom to, to come out the other side. You, you can't go any lower. Um, and um, gambling takes over your life. It took over my life for 20 years. Right. You know, I, I gambled. I gambled everything I had. It's a horrendous problem. I know there's gamblers in the room tonight. Uh, I know that for a fact. 
And uh, it's, they call it the silent addiction because you can gamble and nobody knows, nobody can tell, you know, by your mannerisms or the way you're acting. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're drunk. And so even as a player, if we're going back 20 years, that predates the smartphone being the go-to place to gamble. Were you hanging out in betting shops as a player and all that kind of carry on? No, I had accounts. I used to on the phone? On the phone, okay. yeah. At one stage, I had about seven or eight different accounts and I'd max them out. And because I was earning big money, the bookmakers would let me, it's almost unlimited funds. Whatever you want to do. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it totally took control of me, uh, the gambling. So, you know, now, um, after 11 years, I've, I've been going to GA. Uh, I will continue to go to GA until I'm 70, if I live that long. Right. Because it's two hours out of my life. And uh, the amount of... The amount of uh, benefit I get from helping others now as well. Yeah. Um, and I just think it just keeps me on my toes uh, so, by going to the meetings and joining that fellowship. When you say it took over your life, so when you're, and we'll, we'll talk about the football in just a moment, when you're scoring goals at Anfield for Celtic and winning Players Player of the Year in Scotland, it's having a control over you then. Like, was it a very stressful existence? or Did you think it was a problem throughout the 20 years? At times, did you think, yeah, it's okay? No, not really. I, I enjoyed it. You know, gambling is meant to be fun. You know, people who gamble, not everybody who gambles is, a, is, a, is an addict. Yeah. Gambling is meant to be fun. Sure. You and know? did you think you were an addict for much of those 20 years? Not an addict. I, I realised that um, maybe at one stage it'll stop. Okay. You know, and I was hoping that one day I, I wouldn't gamble like the way I am. Um, it caused an awful lot of problems in my life, you know. It caused an awful lot of unrest in my in my home and things like that with with uh, with people. Uh, and um, I was an addict. I, I am still a recovering gambling addict, and and I will still recover. I'm still in recovery every day in my life. Right. So um, I'm 11 years. I've uh, I've I've erased it from my thinking process, my mind. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I think if I, if I hadn't have got myself clean, I'd have either been dead or I'd have been in jail. What, what prompted you 11 years ago to make the change? It was my wife. My, my wife, I'd, I'd been out all day and um, I had a three-storey house in Wales where I was living at the time. I live in Edinburgh now for the last seven years. But um, I came home and I went in the middle bedroom. My wife used to sleep upstairs with my children, my three girls. And um, it was six o'clock in the morning, I heard like banging, like bang, bang, bang like that. And it was my wife, she, she was carrying the suitcases. She'd packed her bags and the children's bags and she was leaving. So that was a big moment. Um, and I could feel her almost hear her coming down the stairs with the suitcases, bang, bang, bang. Nice. And she came in the room and she said, John, I've had enough. She basically said, look, I, th I think so much of you. She said, I cannot sit back and watch you put, put yourself through what you're putting yourself through. Yeah. Um, she said, I'm off and I'm taking the girls with me. Ooh. And that was my rock bottom. I was on my hands and knees. I was pleading with her to give me another chance. Um, which, through the grace of God, she did. Yeah. That Sunday, 
I went to GA in Swansea the 2nd of October 2011. Uh, sorry, the 5th of October, 2000, my mother's birthday. And through um, a, a proper sort of determined uh, mental uh, attitude, I've managed to stay clean and I've learned and I've done the 12 steps. And um, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life because wow. it controlled my life. Mm. I've, I've not only, it's not only saved my life, it's actually gave me a life by stopping gambling because oh, yes, yeah. it's, if you're an addict, addictions are really, really hard to crack, very difficult. Um, and and it's, it's quite easy to become, if, if you're a gambler, a big gambler, unless you're getting help, unless you want to get help, in my opinion, there's only one place that you're going and that's rock bottom. Yeah. If you're not prepared to get yourself out of situations and change, yes. And I've been there, um, but there's anarchy going to be in your life at some stage, whether it's with your wife, your children, your work. Um, and I just don't have that problem anymore. You that know, must because feel, I'm. That must feel very good when you wake up in the morning. It does. I've just yeah. got a clear conscience now, and yeah. I've got an open mind and. It's interesting, the first thing you said is, I've got a clear conscience, because there must be a guilt, you said it caused havoc in your life. You must have to tell white lies and worse lies and constantly be hiding things. Well, compulsive addicts are, are compulsive liars. That's what we are. Yeah. You know, alcoholics will sleep with a bottle of vodka under their pillow and tell their wife they're under a drink for three months. What, know, does, what does GA do for you when you go to a meeting today? Why, why, why is that important for you to keep going? It's therapy. Therapy. It's therapy for me. And uh, 11 years ago, when I went to GA for the first time, I was in all sorts of trouble. I, my, my second marriage was on the brink. Um, I wasn't really bothering much with my children because gambling takes over, addictions take over. Not because I was a bad person, it's because I was an addict. Yeah. And I was ill. I wasn't very well, you know, um, it had got a hold of me. So um, when I go to GA now, I come away and I think that that was a little bit of medicine, you know, a little bit of medicine for two hours, listening to people's stories, helping, giving advice, listening to advice. And um, they're wonderful places, nice. you know. Well, congr congratulations, genuinely, because that's an amazing thing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it really is. And to talk about it as well is great. Yeah, but I, I don't want any credit or, you know, I, I had to do something for myself. You know, I needed to do this for myself. It's amazing you managed to juggle that with this great career. Mm -hmm. I, I, I must say, I didn't realise that you were struggling as badly behind the scenes. Yeah. It's always the way, isn't it? So, brief recap for a moment. Arsenal at the age of 19 in 1995, 2.5 million, most expensive teenager in British transfer history. Two years later, you go to West Ham, Harry Redknapp takes you there, their transfer record. You go to Wimbledon at 23, 7.5 million, Joe Kinnear takes you there. So, I mean, that was a, a hell of a start to life in professional football. And then, of course, Celtic uh, comes along. I'm curious at Arsenal, for instance, you got a glimpse of the early Wenger years. Yeah. What was he like? Well, first of all, George Graham. George Graham signed me. Sure. Um, I was at Luton. I'd gone to Luton from school. Um, 
apprentice, YTS scheme at 19. I had this wonderful move to Arsenal, George Graham. And then George got the, um, he got relieved of his duties after about four or five games yeah. because of that, yeah. um, that incident with the Norwegian, um, I think he was Norwegian agent or something. So George was relieved of his duties and then Bruce Rioch came in and then obviously Arsene Wenger. And Arsene Wenger wanted me to stay at Arsenal. Um, he said, look, I've got the best tool on the planet right now. I've got Dennis Bergkamp, who was an unbelievable player. Yeah. And he had Ian Wright, who at the time was the England centre-forward. So I played, me and Wrighty played several times together, and Bergkamp played in the hole. Oh. But um, there was always a feeling in, in the back of my mind that Wenger wanted to play them too. They were fantastic. It's pretty good too. <laughs> and I was next man in. Okay. I was next man in. Um, but I've got Harry Redknapp. I've got Harry Redknapp on the phone. And Harry's quite persistent when he wants something. Um, and he said, come to West Ham. He said, we're looking for a number nine. He says, you play every game. I'll build my team around you. Yeah. They're good young players, Ferdinand, uh, Lampard, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick. Um, Jermaine Defoe they had a wonderful youth team and uh, he says we've got good players coming through the system he said we're desperate for a centre forward and I think I could have stayed at Arsenal I left Arsenal in 97 and they won the double in 98 yeah. you know so I could have stayed and picked up a couple of medals but I think I wanted to play yeah. you've, you've, you've got to play Plus, in that double year, Anelka is going to arrive as well, so it's going to become more competitive. Anelka arrived for five hundred thousand, and they sold him for twenty-two million. Yeah. Patrick arrived when I was there. Patrick Vieira played with Patrick. I didn't play with Thierry Henry, and it's interesting because I was at the Euros a couple of years ago. I know Thierry Henry is not a great name. I should be mentioning here, so yeah, I changed that one then. Um, but I could have played with, obviously, him. He's a great player, yeah. obviously. Um, sorry for offending anybody if I offended the Irish here. Uh, but then I went, I left for, uh, for West Ham. And I scored goals at West Ham. And we stayed up that particular year. Yeah, yeah. Harry was great to work with. We had good players. Moncur, uh, Bishop, Ferdinand, you know, Trevor Sinclair. We had some real good players in that team as well. Yeah. And did Wenger strike you as football genius was he great to work under what was it about he him at that time he was totally different to anything else I'd ever I'll, worked I'll, under I'll bet he was yeah he was um, he changed all the diet all the food the supplements normally it was like a, a bit of a liquid lunch with a few of the lads yeah you know you try and shoot off away from the dinner table and once in a while you'd go to a pub around the corner you'd have a few pints and steak and chips or whatever you had not everybody but some of the lads used to do that on a regular basis Arsene Wenger introduced a different style of training. Um, everything was on the watch, you know, it was all timed. It was all, became a lot more, I wouldn't say professional, but a bit more organized. Um, it was attention to detail a lot more. You, you, would, you would run for 20 minutes every morning to get the lactic acid out of your body. Um, you'd have one day physical in the week where you'd just run, wouldn't see a ball. Nice. Uh, and all of a sudden the players just started to buy into what he wanted and I think the likes of Tony Adams Paul Merson Ian Wright Dixon Winterburn Boldy these guys tuned in to what he wanted 
and they had great success. Yeah. You know, they, they won titles, they won doubles. Um, and I think that Arsene Wenger put years on top of these guys' careers. Yeah. There's no doubt they would have been finished earlier yeah. if they hadn't tuned into the Arsene Wenger way. Um, and as I said, he was so professional, never you'd him swear, a complete gentleman, Arsene Wenger. Um, and he did say to me, look, John, you're next man in. You're next man in if you stay. Um, but I wanted to play. That's fair enough. Because I knew with the Welsh team, Rush, Hughes, Saunders, they were all 10 years older than me. So I felt I needed to be playing regular to get into that national team. You joined Celtic in 2001 and have this amazing five-year spell, three Scottish titles, the adventures in Europe, Scottish Cups, your Players' Player of the Year, as I mentioned in 05, your Football Writers' Player of the Year. You score 25 league goals in 38 league games that season, and it just seems like a thoroughly enjoyable, fun time where you really blossomed as a player and hit your groove as a player and surrounded by other great players. I mean, you're even smiling as I bring all this up, so it's, it's just a great, happy time in your life. Yeah, it was. Um, I was 26 years of age. I'd failed four medicals before arriving at Celtic. Including Rangers. Well, the most famous one people always remind me of was the one at Charlton Athletic, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, the, big, uh, the one that got away. <laughs> no, but uh, when I arrived at Celtic, they just won the treble for the first time in 40-odd years yeah. under the great Jock Steen. Um, so my initial thoughts were... Sutton and Larson had scored 66 goals between them that season. So I'm thinking, well, why do they, why do they want me? Yeah. You know, Chris and Henrik were loved by the crowd. They, they'd linked up. They were a great partnership. Chris was a brilliant foil for Henrik. And um, I went to see Martin O'Neill, and I said, I said, look, I said, am I going to get in the team? Because I sat out the first three or four games. And he said, if you give me a bit of time, he says, I'll get you in the team. And uh, as I walked out of the room, Martin said, John, he said, by the way, he said, go and remind Chris that last season, during that 66 goals, Henrik got 53 <laughs> and Chris got 13. So, but I never did, I never did tell Chris no. that because he was a big friend of mine. But uh, I quickly got in the team and I never came out. Yeah. I never came out of the team in five years. You know, um, I come off a few times after about 65 minutes. But no, it was, a, it was a fantastic team. I think our youngest player was Stylian Petrov, 26. Everybody else was 30, nice. approaching 30. All great experience, international footballers. Knew the game, I played at the highest level. And we had a brilliant manager. Martin O'Neill was unique. Um, and he did great things for Celtic. You know, Celtic were under a little bit of a barren spell before he went there. Yeah. Rangers were very much the dominant force. But he quickly turned that around. You know, he turned that around and uh, it became a great place to play football, Celtic Park. I'll bet it did. And even, it was extraordinary for so many reasons. Not least even Henrik Larsson winning the European Golden Boot. When I think he had to, you know, he's getting half the points of other strikers at other leagues. Uh, he must have been extraordinary to see in his pomp. I think 53 goals, as you said, in that 0-1 season. And then plus 40 in a couple of other seasons. Even you, who, you know, well able to score a goal, at times must have been looking at Larson going, bloody hell, this is a bit different. Henrik was a genius. He, he was just, 
he was so much better than every other player right. in particular in terms of what he did you know and he was he was a complete team player never never spoke about himself very humble did his job did it to the best of his ability um, great mixer as well in the dressing room very focused in terms of what he wanted to do I think the Scandinavian players are very much like that you know they're uh, they're driven and they're they're solid people to be around um, but Henrik I, I think as well that one of the bigger compliments I could pay him was um, he was never quite satisfied with just scoring three goals and winning the game like if I'd scored two goals and Martin brought me off after 70 minutes I'm thinking right you know I've scored two goals I'm happy to yeah. come off Henrik could be on a hat-trick and he'll chase the goalkeeper down in the 90th minute okay. he wants four goals he wants five goals he's relentless in his work um, and he was just a technically amazing could do everything could score any type of goal yeah you know, and his numbers, his numbers are through the roof. It's 242 goals in 315 games. That's averaging 60, 70 goals a season. Yeah. Who does that? Because there was potentially a touch of ignorance around European football. Well, if he's that good, why is he at Celtic? But then he went to Barcelona. And even as quite a, an old player at Old Trafford, in a brief cameo, he just showed how classy yeah. he was so I think he retires almost having shown anybody there was no doubt well, I think a lot of a lot of clubs would have probably came in for him yeah, I'm sure during his seven years but in all fairness to Henrik he had a vision you know he, he had a he had a thinking way of I'm going to give Celtic many years I think he enjoyed his life his personal life in Glasgow he was left alone for being such a superstar right his family were treated very nice um, and he managed to hit all sorts of records you yeah. know um, and then he went to Man United as you say he was class class few months yeah. the players loved him the players clapped him in the dressing room they had so much respect for him and then he won a Champions League at, at Barcelona so for people to say well he did it at Celtic in the Scottish League but he also did it at a later age yes. when he was really fit you know he could still uh, he could still do great things which he managed to do we often hear that Glasgow is a real goldfish bowl how did you find life in there being a Celtic player was it enjoyable away, I, away right. I think you, you, you yeah. generally know where to go and where not to go really um, you tend to you tend to go to the the places that the other players go really um, and you'd find Rangers players in there as well I don't think the fans liked you no sort of uh, talking to each other and things like that but I used to see lots of the Rangers boys out it was never a problem for me yeah. um, but you know Glasgow's a real thriving happening city um, and I embraced Glasgow I loved it I loved my five years that I was there uh, brilliant you know two sixty thousand stadiums in in one city yeah two global um, institutional clubs with incredible support worldwide um and the derbies were great well, i had a great time in the derbies as well and you know they are the games that you want to do well in they are the games that you would dear yourself 
to the crowd. Yeah. If you can score in them big old firm games, and I managed to do that. I can imagine the adrenaline in the first five minutes of an old firm game. Don't get yourself sent off is almost half the thought no. as well. <laughs> no, there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's very unique. Um, there's lots of rivalry between the two sets of supporters. Uh, the passion, the noise level, you know. And you play each other five, six times a year, but everyone's different. Yeah. Every single game is different. And I think it's, it's those games that you can really, you know, make an impact with the crowd. And we mentioned your four medicals that you failed. It doesn't no. seem like you missed a huge amount of games because of the knee, which is the yeah. curiosity there. No, I failed it was on my knee. I'd had four medicals. I failed the medical at Charlton, Alan Kirbishley. I failed the medical at Spurs with George Graham was signing me again. Signed me for Arsenal, he was taking me to Spurs. Yeah. Alan Sugar, David Pleat, who was my manager at Luton. Failed that medical. Then I failed the medical at Coventry and the Gordon Strachan. And then obviously the Rangers one where um, I failed a medical there. Uh, flew up in Sir David Murray's private jet. Yeah. Um, went for a scan, and um, something showed up on my knee, and they decided not to go with it. But you were generally fit. Fit, yeah. I was doing everything in, you know. I can remember Martin O'Neill phoning me up and saying, "John, unless you've got a hole in your heart, I'm going to sign you." Right. I've looked at all your medical history. I've looked at your training attendances, and Martin. Um, showed a lot of faith in me took a chance if you like yeah. having failed four medicals it was a chance but I ended up playing 220 games for Celtic um, most of them were under Martin and as I said I think uh, if it hadn't have been for him I probably would never have played for Celtic what was his style as man manager? I just think he, um, I think he has a presence. And I think he, if, if ever he picked me, it was a privilege to play. You know, it was, Martin O'Neill does a lot of things on based on what he learned from Brian Clough. It's very simple, it doesn't complicate it. Yeah. He expects you to do the things that you're good at. Like for me, I was good at, I was good in the air. I could hold the ball up, I was strong, and I could score goals. So basically, he used to say to me, John, don't have 30 things in your mind today when the ball comes into you. Don't think of flicking it here, flicking it there. Have one thing in your mind, put your foot on the ball, allow the team to come up the pitch, and if you can, just for me today, please, just this once, pass it to a green and white shirt <laughs> and then get yourself in the box. Okay. Now, I knew I had to do a lot more than that. Yes. But he simplified it. And he simplified everybody's roles. Like, he used to say to Chris, he couldn't teach Chris to, when the ball's in the air from the goal kick, to give the centre-half a little nudge when the referee's looking at the ball, and it's no coincidence that the ball used to come down and Chris used to go bang, down on his chest. 
because he was clever yeah. and he couldn't teach that. Yeah. How do you teach Henrik Larsson how to score a goal? You can't. How do you teach Paul Lambert or Stan Petrov to make them forward runs? It's intelligence, it's football know-how. So he puts the onus on you to go and play and to go and do the right things on the football pitch. And he signed good players. Yeah. You know, and he had a back four. Johan Mialbi, Bobo Baldi, um, Valharan, Thompson, Agat. Tremendous footballers and the three centre-halves would die to keep a clean sheet. They loved keeping clean sheets. They loved keeping the ball out of their net. Mm. Um, and he played three at Villa. He played three at Leicester. He played three, I think, at Wickham. He loves three centre-halves, wing-backs, because that allows him to play two strikers as well. Um, so he stuck to that system, yeah. generally. Yeah. And uh, I had great success under him, you know. And it's really my opinion. He's the best manager I ever worked under in terms of getting the best out of me. Yes. Very honest. Tells you exactly how it is. Um, and as I said, if I played in his team, if he picked me, I felt it was a privilege that he put me in his team and he trusted me to go and win the football match for him. Mm. Because players win your games. Managers don't win your games. Players win your football matches. It must be nice to go out as a player with just something very simple in your head. Yeah, it was. Because I, I would think, especially as, as football has evolved, yeah. the messages are very complicated, lots yeah. of messaging going on. And look, football is better than ever in many ways, but I'm sure some players think, God, this is a lot to take on. Now, you make a very good point because I think where managers go wrong, they look at players, and there was no point telling me to run the channels. Wasn't my game. Yeah. No point telling Mark Hughes and Mark Viduka and big centre forwards, but tell them, get hold of the ball. Be a focal point. And that's music to your ears then. I yeah, can do that. you know, yeah. and, and, and do the things. Go and win headers. Be aggressive. Run across people, you know, and win your headers. Um, things like that. And you're, you're spot on. And good managers, they look at it and they go, I've got this player. What does he give me? What does he give me? Is he a great athlete? Right, he's a brilliant athlete. I want you to go cover back, forward, get and support the front. If you're not such a good athlete, just cheat a little bit on the halfway line and do your great work going forward. Yeah. You've got a player called Jota at Celtic now. He does all his great work going forward. You don't want to knacker him out by 60, 70 minutes. Yeah. So he'll cheat in a football sense, cheat. He'll come so far, so when Celtic break and win the ball back, he's away. Yeah. And that's when he's at his best. You've got to get the best out of players and, and, and good managers have a look at it and say, this is what I've got. Um, and, and, and that's how I'm going to win the game. I'm going to set them up in a system where they'll enjoy it and they all know what they're doing. Ange Postacoglu now, he's got a real sort of um, philosophy and it's really hard work, but every single player that goes out on the pitch knows his role, so it's not complicated. Yeah, he's got a certain charisma as well, doesn't he? And a presence, a bit like O'Neill. Yeah. Maybe you have to at a club like Celtic. As you um, 
retired. So, I mean, retirement's a difficult thing for any professional sports person to go through. And as you have talked about already this evening, you were going through a whole heap of things on the side. Uh, where are you now in your life in terms of like the next 15, 20 years? Media can be a terribly precarious, unreliable yeah. uh, source of income, but you've, you've been very visible on t- our TV screens over the last decade. Yeah. Is it, where's your head now over what you want your life to be over well, the next number of years? As I said when I first came out, I'm healthy. Yeah. So I'm alive and I can, I can do things and I can hopefully stay healthy. Yeah. Because you know? health is number one. Health is number one in life. Without your health, you've got nothing. If you can't get out of bed in the morning and get yourself down the stairs, yeah. you can have all the money in the world. You know, it's, your health is number one. Second to health is trust. You know, trust is only second to health. Um, so with someone like me who's in the limelight, you know, um, I've got to trust people. I've got to pick and choose who I hang around with, uh, make sure I'm in the right company. Uh, and I don't see a long-term future in the media. I, I don't want a long-term future in the media. I'm going to the World Cup on Saturday. Yeah. I've got eight games to cover. I'll enjoy working with ITV over in Qatar. And you, you, you enjoy media? I'll enjoy I do enjoy it, but I don't see a long-term future. Okay. Um, because four or five years ago, I had contracts, three-year deals, covering 40, 50 games a season. I just feel now there's a younger element coming through. There's a new generation of pundits coming through. And I think you've got shelf life. You know, there's only one Guy Lineker. You know, there's only one Mark Pugac. You know, um, there's there's not many of them around, really. So I've got one or two things happening. You know, for me, one or two business ventures and things like this in Edinburgh and um, one or two other plans, property and you know, so I'm happy I'm happy where I am, I don't mind dipping my toe in for the World Cup, yes. it's a great gig yeah, it is. I don't mind doing the odd Sky gig the odd BT gig, yeah. but I know I don't think I'm going to be one of those that signs a three year contract with the BBC, I think my days of that have gone now Yeah. Unless somebody comes in who takes a liking to me and says I quite like, you know. um, It's almost like being a, you get your shelf life as a player, you get your shelf life as the recently retired player where you're the shiny new pundit and everybody gets you on. And then as you said, the next match come through and the next match come through and you're another year older, another year older. It's actually tough again on sports people who go into the media when they hit their 50s. They almost need to reinvent themselves again. It's a a curious lifestyle in that respect. Yeah, but I've I've had a great run of it. I've I've done the whole, I've done match of the day. I've done football focus. I've been over in, in Dublin. I've done... RTE, I've done all these big shows for yeah. years, I've had a great run in the media about 15 years of the media I've been to three major tournaments you know, once with the BBC 2016 mm. then I was with ITV 2021 and I'm going to Qatar on yeah. the weekend So, but it's nice not to be reliant yeah, I've had a great run but I, um, I, I get it I get it, you know and that's why I'm thinking outside the box um, different things um, my daughter's in Australia, my son lives in Wales, so um, I try and get to see them as much as I can, and my wife is fantastic, I've got three little girls who are in school. And why, why Edinburgh? 
Edinburgh because it's one of the finest cities in the world. It's a absolutely stunning, yeah. Yeah, um, I feel I feel very lucky to live in Edinburgh. I've got a lovely house in the countryside. I play a bit of golf. You know, me and Frank McAvenny, we catch up for a game of golf. Okay. I come over to Dublin now and again and do a few gigs and I'm very normal. I'm from a council estate in Swansea, like like most of the people in here from council estates. You know, and I don't put myself on the pedestal, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm just a very, very normal guy. Do you miss football? I miss the occasion. I miss the match day. Right. I don't miss the travelling. I don't miss everyday training. I few injuries, like two back operations and a um, couple on my knee, obviously. So I loved travelling from the hotel to the ground and seeing the fans on the bus and getting a bit nervous and okay. anxious and okay. needing to win, you know. Um, but I don't miss the day-to-day involvement. I was very blessed. I had, a, I had a really good career. But I've got other things now. I've got other interests. And I'm 47 years of age, and I'm proud of what I achieved, you know. But I probably achieved more after football than what I did in football with my cancer and the gambling stuff. So, you know... Um, that's where I'm at now. Yeah. That's where I'm at. It's, it's been an eventful life when you lay it out in, in those terms. What was your happiest spell at Celtic? Or what's the highlight or the, the memory that over a cup of tea, if you're daydreaming, you might go back to occasionally? What, Celtic? Or, well, I, I'm guessing it is at Celtic, but your, your, your favourite football memory? Or... Well, I became a winner at Celtic. Yeah. You know, I, I played with Arsenal and I played with great players and West Ham and um, Wimbledon was great. You know, Wimbledon was a, it was a it was a riot every day at Wimbledon. Yeah. Joe Killier, Sam Haman, but um, I think probably with Celtic, I never had that chance to walk up the steps and lift the trophy. Yeah. And I won two Scottish Cups, I won a League Cup, and I won three titles. Should have been five titles because I won three titles, and the two that I lost, we lost by a goal, one goal. Yeah. And we lost by a point. There was a helicopter Sunday one, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. So the two I lost were incredibly close. Yeah. And the ones that I won were by 27, 33, 21 points. Okay. So, um, as I said, you know, picking up the, the league winners' medal, and walking around the stadium, and the fans are chucking you the scarves, and you know, everybody's just. Loving it, not a hot summer's day and <laughs> end of May. Um, you've got your family, your kids are on the pitch with you, and you're walking around celebrating the league win, the music's on, all the Celtic songs are being played, and uh, that's a special moment because I won. You know, I won. But I didn't get that at Arsenal. I played in two European finals for Arsenal. I played in the Super Cup yeah, final yeah. and the Cup Winners' Cup, but we lost both games. You know, at West Ham, we lost in two quarter-final of the FA Cup and League Cup. But at Celtic, incredible fans, unbelievable support, you know. Um, a brilliant occasion. 60,000 fans packed into the ground every week. Yeah. Idolising you, you know, absolutely idolising you. And as I said, probably at Celtic, because I won, you know, and you enjoy winning. Well, that's fair enough. Um, listen, I mean, we've covered a lot there. It's been 
amazing to hear your, your perspective on life. You know, it's not often we talk with a footballer and, and cover all those topics. So you are going to stay with us. Damien Delaney is going to be along later on. We're going to talk about the football. But for the time being, would you give John Hartson a warm round Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you.